Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 15 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 15th of May. Leon, what's on the card for this week? Today we're going to be talking to Taichi Hoshino. Uh, Taichi Hoshino is the CEO of Monetize, which is a company which uses algorithms to benchmark a consumer's financial health against the market and offers them bespoke and better deals from their banks. Essentially, it flips big data on its head and helps consumers and banks speak the same language. Sounds good. And uh, after that, we're going to have a terrific interview with economist Stephen Kakoulis, who's going to give us his assessment of Joe Hockey's 2015 budget. And uh, it's very interesting it will be too. So let's listen to Koichi. Well, Koichi, tell us about Monetize. Yeah, so Monetize is a web-based platform uh, that helps consumers understand their financial health and also provides tailored product recommendations uh, to help consumers save money. And so where we've started is we've started with the most common retail banking products. So we cover savings, uh, term deposits, credit cards, uh, home loans and superannuation products. You do all of this on your mobile device? Uh, so it's across all devices, so uh, including desktop, but tablet and mobile as well. So how, do, how does somebody, you know, take an average person who'd like to save a little on their bank charges and stuff and manage their stuff, uh, how do they log in and get uh, get your help? Yeah, sure. So it's a, it's a very simple interface. It's just a couple of steps to help people uh, through what is usually a very cumbersome process, I think. So typically when people are thinking about whether they're in the right product or not and how much they might be missing out on, what they could be getting instead, uh, what they might typically need to do is uh, go through their financial statements, understand what they're getting, uh, do a bit of research, um, go out in the market and understand what other alternative offers might be and then do the computation for how much they could be saving per year. And when you do that for one product, it could take, you know, half an hour, an hour uh, for, for those who are financially savvy and know what they're doing. Uh, but it could take hours if you do that across your entire footprint. And so what we are helping customers do is we're helping them with each of those steps and automating all of it. So we're embedding... Um, you know, everything from your financial information to our financial expertise and product knowledge, but our market research, we're all embedding that into the process. And what it takes for consumers is for uh, them to do a very quick sign-up process. Um, the next step is to link uh, their online accounts, and what that entails is just um, linking their online accounts by typing in their online logins. That basically uh, helps us with a one-way connection, a one-way download of your financial information, uh, and it's a very secure process that I can tell you more about. Um, and that helps us then get the relevant financial information that we can then pass our algorithms over to tell you exactly what you're getting in interest rates and fees for all of your accounts that you link with us. And that then uh, gets compared to our market uh, database, uh, automatically benchmarks to the best products in the market, and tells you exactly how much you could be saving. And in order to help you understand that across your full portfolio, we give you uh, a quick score, which is called an M score, a uh, number between zero and 100, that helps you uh, not only get a snapshot of how good your product set might be, but also keeps track of it for you as the market moves. And we give you one single number across your entire portfolio that tells you how much you're missing out on and how much you could be saving, uh, as well as the, the products um, that will help you get that. 
Do you use an algorithm for this? Yes, we do. Uh, so we use algorithms, algorithms at every stage. So we use algorithms to understand what your needs are, uh, your product needs, according to each of the products that you link with us. And then we also use smart algorithms to try and match what the best products out there in the market are that are best suited to your needs. So how much does it cost the consumer to sign up with you? So it's 100% free for consumers, uh, and it will always be free for consumers. Um, so we truly believe that the first step in all of this is fostering both consumer literacy around, sorry, financial literacy for consumers around products and uh, how the market works. Uh, it's also about uh, getting people interested and engaged about their products and understanding how much they could be saving. Uh, and so we believe that making it as easy as possible for people to give it a go and get some value out of it and get going immediately, we believe is, is the first step. So it, it's free for consumers and it, it will always be free. So what's the business model? How do you, what's your slice? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. So we're considering a number of revenue models, obviously, um, but all of them are going to be free for consumers and room and, you know, the, the most important thing for us is to remain independent and objective for consumers as well. Because there are a lot of providers out there who are trying to help consumers with a similar problem, but uh, aligned with financial institutions and getting kickbacks and, um, you know, tainting their, their sort of advice. So before I, I sort of answer the question, let me take you through what we think is going to happen with with monetize and where we see the opportunities are, and that'll give you a sense of where we think the the revenue model and the business model will go towards uh, in the future. So, you know, what we're trying to solve here is a, a consumer problem, which is where consumers are just not getting the best rates and fees on their retail banking products. And we know this because we ran a trial of 100 people pre-launch, and on average, uh, each consumer was able to save around $2,000. Uh, per year across their three to four products that they link with us. Part of the problem is everything that I just described around consumer literacy and engagement, uh, around people having a very disaggregated footprint across multiple institutions, uh, and people potentially not knowing what they're missing out on. But the other side of the, the problem, or the bits that the banks are contributing to, is that banks are encumbered by legacy IT systems, um, and they've been built around products and not customers. So they're both underserving customers in terms of accessing them, but also through a lack of understanding. Um, this leads to them having a one-size-fits-all approach uh, in serving customers, and we all know what that feels like. Uh, you throw in the, the marketing and the commercial and legal jargon that they throw at you, and... You know, you, you take the lack of incentive uh, for institutions to, to really serve customers, uh, given the sort of oligopolistic, uh, uncompetitive market that, that we exist in. And you have a problem where customers and banks are just not talking the same language and are not trying to solve this problem together. So we see the future as, um, and, and the solution to the customer problem is best solved through the participation, collaboration, and engagement of institutions. And so we see the solution as, a, um, as building smart market structures that not only create a safe and secure platform for customers to aggregate and share their information, but one where institutions 
can gain a better understanding of individual customers and come to them with uh, better offers and better services that are tailored to the individual. And we believe we're in a really good position to to facilitate that sort of interaction between uh, consumers and financial institutions. And so we can say that our business model is uh, really focused on taking part in the opportunities that are created in that market structure. Which would be, so, that, the, which would be that the institutions would pay you some sort of fee? Ultimately. That's right, whether that's a flat fee or a percentage fee. Um, it's certainly a possibility that um, to in order to reduce the friction between consumers and uh, banks and their interactions, we take a slice of that um, interaction. So, yes, you're right. And uh, how long have you been going for as a startup? Um, yeah, so it's been in development for the last 18 months, uh, including a, uh, a trial with about 100 participants of uh, close friends and family, uh, which we ran in December, January. Um, potentially, this could revolutionise banking, couldn't it? Absolutely. I think I think this is a really big deal because everyone has banking products um, and everyone has multiple relationships with multiple institutions and anything that can help uh, reduce the, the frictions and create incentives for uh, both sides to, to understand each other and get better deals for consumers, certainly, and for institutions to then be able to engender loyalty and think about the lifetime value of customers in a more meaningful way. Uh, I, think this is, I think this is massive. And uh, so where do you see it going from here? I mean, what, what sort of growth do you see happening? Um, so for the first week, we've seen incredible uh, engagement and growth. Uh, we've actually been surprised and overwhelmed by the level of interest. Um, and, you know, for, for the first week, we've been able to save consumers an extra $100,000 in combined savings every day. Uh, so I think the potential is, is I mean, the sky's the limit. Um, you know, the, the more people who engage with us and participate on the platform, the smarter the, the algorithms become uh, because it's, it's kind of like a network effect. The more uh, variations in experience that we see, the more... Uh, we're able to learn about, you know, discrete uh, behaviour or transactions or um, bits and pieces of information that we then can build into the algorithm so that the tailoring becomes even more precise. And the more people that participate, the greater the incentive is for institutions to also participate and collaborate uh, with our customers. So, you know, it's growing at an incredibly rapid pace. Uh, I know it's only been a very short amount of time, but the momentum is, is kicking on, and uh, and I believe that it will continue um, apace. Yeah. Um, lastly, the, you mentioned security, and obviously if somebody's going to pass on their financial information, that's got to be rock-solid secure. What sort of software, what sort of protection do you employ? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. The security and safety of our customers' information is our number one priority. Customers absolutely have to feel safe that that putting their information on an aggregated, uh, in an aggregated way on our platform is is uh, is 100% okay. So we, we use exactly the same security technology as the major banks. Uh, that means that we encrypt all personalised information or personally identifiable information the moment it lands on our site. We don't store any passwords. 
the linking of accounts that takes place is a one-way uh, connection or a download only of financial information. And so that means that there's no ability to access your funds, move them around, or change any details. Uh, and importantly, we don't link any of your financial information with any personally identifiable information, even when it's encrypted. So we've taken uh, absolutely every measure that we can think of uh, and is standard banking industry practice to ensure that the information of our customers is, is secure. Taichi Hoshino, thank you very much for your time and we wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, the banks, if uh, Monetize takes off, the uh, the banks will be yeah, a bit more efficient or the relationship will be more efficient. Well, it's about uh, changing the relationship between the consumer and the banks, so that's going to be interesting. Yeah, because banks and uh, lawyers aren't exactly popular in this country. No, they're not. And it might help the banks. Now, let's have a chat to economist Stephen Coolis and ask him what he thinks about Joe Hockey's budget. They're, what, they're, what they're desperate to do is undo the political damage from last year. It's as simple I, as that. I, I think that's it, yes. In, in a way, it doesn't uh, help too many people. Sure, the Small Business Initiative actually quite like. I think that's quite good uh, in terms of stimulating a little bit of capex in the small business sector. Not huge, but it's a, it's a positive thing. Aside from that, no one gets any great benefit. Which, but also, not many people get um, any great loss. So it's a sort of a don't offend any anyone type budget. And uh, after the sort of dramas of last year, you can see why they're doing it. So it's more politics than economics because the deficit and debt are still there. Unemployment is still too high, frankly. And the, the question that I'm wondering, and it's obviously early days, is does this put just pressure back on the RBA to be the ones who are managing the business cycle, who are managing growth, who are managing unemployment? So the RBA will have to do the heavy lifting. Well, yes, uh, particularly if there is any downside to these forecasts. You know, we've all been around long enough to know forecasts are just that. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're too optimistic, sometimes they're too pessimistic. And at the moment, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to be bagging Treasury forecasts. It's not a, you know, they're sometimes right, they're sometimes wrong. But uh, what you can say is that if they are erring on the side of optimism and say in the next three to six months we do find that, you know, uh, the economy's a little bit weaker than they are forecasting, unemployment's a little bit higher even, then our friends at the RBA are going to be thinking, oh dear, here we go again, we've got to trim rates even lower and hopefully not having to sort of look at Sydney house prices still growing at 13, 14, 15%. Now, uh, the, the budget forecasts are surplus at the end of this decade. The <laughs> thing that um, disturbs me is it doesn't actually tell us how we're going to get there. There's, well, the, the, the critical issue about the surplus in 2019-20 fiscal year, it's all based on economic growth, which means bracket creep. Uh, they're not giving back any bracket creep over the next five years. And even though wages growth is forecast to be pretty low at 25 to 3% over those five years, well, if you use 3% times five years, that's 15% wages growth. So in five years, we're all going to be getting paid 15% more on average. And as you get higher pay, you do have the propensity to move into a higher tax bracket. So yes, you're spot on that it will be bracket creep that is largely the catalyst of this um, low, you know, 
cumbersome return to surplus. Well, the only work being flagged on infrastructure is uh, with Northern Australia, and is that going to be enough? And it's only $5 billion in terms of new initiatives. Look, one of the criticisms of the budget from those who were sort of saying, well, we've got low government bond yields at the moment, it's cheap for the government to borrow money, uh, the economy is sluggish, so why not you know, borrow $10, $20, 30000000000 billion at really low interest rates and fast-track some of this infrastructure. You know, we know it's been an issue for decades. We know there's an infrastructure requirement throughout Australia in terms of uh, roads, rail, public transport, airports. All of these sorts of things do require a pretty hefty uh, pickup in infrastructure spending. The economy's weak at the moment. Unemployment's too high. Interest rates are low. To me, it would have been entirely sensible and something that I think most people would give a tick to if they said, okay, we're going to put aside our debt and deficit rhetoric for a moment. We're going to borrow while, you know, all these conditions are in place. And we're going to make the economy grow a little bit faster and get unemployment back with a 5% handle on it rather than letting it drift and just uh, on a wing and a prayer hope that we get growth and uh, uh, stronger and the unemployment rate lower. So the the big winners at this budget are small businesses. Uh, what's your reading of that? Yeah, look, that, that's a useful initiative. Um, look, the, the, the total uh, impact is about 0.1 of a contribution to GDP. So, look, it's not the be-all and end-all in terms of uh, stimulating the economy, but it is a, use, a useful thing. I think that you know, when the economy's weak, uh, you know, all through the GFC, prior to the GFC, you know, fiscal policy should be used to um, uh, act as a counterbalance to the business cycle. So when the economy is subdued below trend, which we are now, there's no question about that, yeah, spend a little bit of money. And giving the small business sector an opportunity to accelerate the depreciation of uh, capital equipment and those sorts of things is a good thing. I'm assuming small business sector will go out and do it. So, yeah, we, we could well see um, a period where the small business sector gets a real boost. The, the question and, uh, you know, the initial feedback is sort of curious at this stage about big business is but they're still going to be concerned about the lack of policy reform. You know, there's, there's nothing on tax reform here. There's nothing on infrastructure, as we just mentioned. So, yeah, the, we know the tax white paper's coming out later. But again, it's a bit like the problem with the previous government. Had a fantastic Ken Henry tax review, implemented a little bit of it, but the bulk of it was just left sitting on the shelf. And that, that's a problem the biz, big business sector might be, you know, a little uh, a little annoyed about when they can see the opportunities that are still there in the, in the global economy, still in China, despite the fact that it's softening a little bit in terms of its growth. And, yeah, you know, it's the sort of stuff that we do need if we're going to get the economy back to trend and above trend in terms of GDP growth. Now, uh, the other thing uh, hockey flagged was uh, new measures cracking down on tax avoidance by multinational companies and um, re- extending the GST to uh, digital downloads. What's your reading of that? Again, worthy initiatives. Yeah, I don't think he's put a number on on the revenue from all of those things just yet because it's a little hard to calculate. But again, worthy initiatives. That That, that is a a hole, if you like, in the budget uh, revenue side of, of the economy. It's something the previous government looked at. So, you know, full marks to uh, the Treasurer for looking at these sorts of things and for the international tax problems. You know, we know that these big companies sell a lot of their stuff in Australia, but they remit the profits to Singapore or to Ireland or to the Bahamas or somewhere, goodness knows where, uh, and they don't pay much tax here. So, again, if you're looking at some of the structural problems with the budget, and again, it was evident in the previous government and it's been growing over time, uh, any effort to make uh, people pay their fair share of taxes is the critical thing. And I think think you're touching on an overarching theme on tax policy. 
most people don't mind paying a bit of tax if they can see where the money's going. You know, funding aged care, health care, disability care, defence and roads, that, that's fine. What they do mind is if the tax system is not fair. You know, if I'm paying my fair share and others aren't, and that's big business aren't paying and multinationals aren't paying, they get really annoyed. <laughs> and I think that's part of the problem. So, again... Yeah, you know, it, it's a good a good change. Yeah, you know, the, the amount of revenues unknown at this stage, but you know, again, if, it, if, it, if this is the first step towards making sure that uh, we collect fair amount of tax from the corporate sector, then uh, again, another, another useful initiative that's going to be helping that uh, long process of getting the budget back towards balance. But given that the multinational corporations have had a long history of uh, getting around tax laws, what chances do you think the ATO would have of uh, knuckling down on them? Yeah, great, great uh, issue to work out whether they're going to be successful. Um, and again, there is still the scope for these big multinationals to, uh, if you like, uh, funnel their revenue and uh, their other profits and earnings to other entities, other offshore entities. So again, those those uh, foreign tax havens, if you like. Look, it's going to be difficult, and of course, they've got very clever accountants and all the rest of it. Uh, but again, it's worth it's worth taking these steps. You know, this is the first initiative. I know the UK has tried some of these uh, measures to try to recoup a little bit of revenue that sort of uh, flows out of the UK. Part of the G20 agenda that uh, was put in place late last year. So, look, this, this, I think this issue will be around for many years to come. Like all big reforms, you've got to start with a few baby steps, and you know. I guess if you're going to be a little bit critical, you'd say it's a baby step, but it's an important first um, iteration, if you like, of what will be an ongoing process of making sure, as we said before, that that those companies that earn a lot of money within a particular economy, so within Australia, pay their fair share of tax. No more, but don't make... You know, don't pretend that these, this money is sort of covering some other uh, marketing or something based in Singapore. Now, final question. The, uh, I mean, if this is uh, the budget now, I hate to think what the pre-election budget's going to look like, but uh, um, looking, uh, looking ahead, they put out, they put up all, handling all the big structural issues. When do you think they'll get round to doing that? In, after 2016? Yeah, look, I think, well, in fact, even some of these initiatives uh, don't kick in till 2017, anyway, after the next election. Remember that the next election will be held in the latter part of 2016. Uh, the the um, childcare assistance does not take effect until 2017. So we might have a new government. Um, we'll certainly have had an election by then. And so all these things might have changed by then. So the question about these big picture reforms, there is a tax white paper um, coming along soon, which will discuss a lot of tax policy issues. Uh, we do have a, a requirement for an infrastructure uh, paper. The Productivity Commission's reporting on more issues relating to childcare over the next six to 12 months. And there'll be, and, and undoubtedly, there will be some big picture reforms that are put in, in each of those uh, particular uh, pieces of work. And that's that's really important. Let's hope that they get implemented. <laughs> let's, let's hope that the, the government and, in fact, their election issues and the, and the people vote knowing that they're going to be electing a government that's going to reform one part of the economy. Because, in a sense, the last five years, and including in the budget that we just saw, has been drift. We've not had that momentum. And, OK, we've had difficult economic circumstances with the global financial crisis and its aftermath. But I think we've got to the point now that that is far enough away, the world economy is looking a little bit better now, that we should be saying, okay, if we want to ever get towards a balanced budget, if we want to make our economy more efficient, more productive, we've got to to do uh, something about our tax system, we've got to do something about workforce participation, we've got to make sure that we do have an economy that, not just in the next year or two, but in the next five or ten years, is 
sufficiently efficient that we compete internationally and that we're able to sort of extend this incredible growth period into sort of 28, 29 and 30 years uh, without a recession. Let's hope that we get that initiative coming through. We have a really sensible debate at the political level from both sides of politics and we can sort of have a have a reform agenda that you know we haven't really seen since the Hawke-Keating years and maybe even the first part of the Howard government when they implemented the GST. So the structural reforms are ahead for further budgets sometime down the track? They've kicked the can down the road, as they say. um, uh, The reform agenda's just got um, hit on the head, I suspect, given the poor selling of the previous budget frankly, the poor policies, to be honest, uh, they weren't really significant reforms. But we've got to yeah, seriously consider about if this is the level of services that we Australians demand from our governments for healthcare, aged care, disability care, defence and roads and all these other things, the money's got to come from somewhere. And, you, and by definition, that involves tax reform. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Well, that was straight from the, straight from the shoulder, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Leon, the news. First of all, in the third reduction since November, China's central bank has cut interest rates by 25 basis points as authorities seek to boost the flagging economy after a raft of data indicated a slowdown. And the benchmark one-year lending rate is reduced 5.1%, deposit rate down 2.25%. And uh, China's GDP expanded only 7.4% in 2014. That's the lowest rate in 24 years. There's also concerns there about the risk of deflation. The release of data shows consumer inflation rose 1.5% in April, below market forecasts. And those figures come after January's slumping consumer inflation of 0.8%, which was the lowest since November 2009. One of the problems of China, of course, is the middle class is very aspirational, but it's also extremely nervous. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I don't know how sustainable that is. But as a result of the interest rate cut, the price of iron ore surged to its highest level in more than two months, and it went to $62.50 a tonne. That's up 3.3% from the prior close of $60.50 a tonne. So everyone is thinking China's fixing itself, and so the price of iron ore is going up. Well, let's hope we're not disappointed down the track. Following his resounding victory in last week's election, European leaders say they'll talk to British Prime Minister David Cameron over Britain's future role in the European Union. What they want to do is try to keep Britain in the EU, Gary, but Cameron has pledged he's going to try to claw back some powers from the European Union, and he's going to hold out a long-promised uh, in-out referendum by the end of 2017. And of course, that's not the only problem he's got because he's got problems, potentially big problems, with the Scottish National Party. Well, the Scottish National Party, and he's also got uh, anti the anti EU faction within his own party. So he has to try to secure reforms in areas like migration benefits, but um, and he wants to repatriate certain powers back to London. Anyway, French Socialist President Francois Hollande has invited to Cameron to Paris for talks, and the EU's Chief Executive Jean Claude Juncker says he'll work to strike a deal with uh, Cameron. And Cameron has made Chancellor. George Osborne, his lead negotiator. It's still a very, very delicate political thing within the UK because you've not only got uh, anti-EU people in the uh, Conservative Party, you've got the uh, independent Britain and UKIP. Now, the US budget has recorded its biggest monthly survey in seven years. And that's a sign of deficits declining, recovery of the world's biggest economy is on its way. US Treasury collected a record $472 billion in revenues last month, and that resulted in $157 billion surplus for the month. And revenues for the year to April are up 9% on the year ago, while government spending is 6% ahead. And the US deficit of $460 billion, which is, is down from $499 billion the previous year, is the second lowest annual figure since September 2008. So that's a good sign, Gary. It is a very good sign. So China's going down and the US is coming up. 
Meanwhile, the negotiations with Greece are continuing and there's been a report, Gary, that Greece is so cash-strapped that it had to tap into its emergency reserves to repay 750 million euro, that's about 1 billion Aussie dollars, to its creditors. Now, the account holding Greek reserve is only meant to be used in case of extraordinary need and Greece's central bank chief, Yanis Stournaris, told the government it could draw 660 million euros from a special account held at the IMF and the balance was scraped together by the government picking up the rest wherever it could. Yeah, going around with a bucket and spade. That's right. And so German finance minister Wolfgang Schirbel has accused Greece of playing chicken with default and has warned while he'll do everything to try to keep Greece in the euro, experience has shown that some countries can sometimes default by accident and be unable to pay their bills. Yeah, and that would be a big accident. Now, the interestingly enough, Gary, the economy of the eurozone grew 0.4% in the first three months of the year. And uh, that's a sign that the recovery is continuing. And although the figure was slightly below analysts' expectations, it shows growth in the block has been accelerating slowly over the past year. And it's the fastest, fastest quarterly growth rate for nearly two years years, Gary. Well, that's pretty good. I think that's very good. Meanwhile, in Australian wages here have increased at their slowest annual rate since the government started issuing the decade the data nearly two decades ago. And other figures show wages, official figures show wages rose 0.5% in the March quarter, and that takes the annual pace of growth to a new low of 2.3%, and that's the lowest on record. In effect, and in fact, wages are actually dropping. Real, right. real wage. Well, that's a problem because it reflects low demand for products, but it also means the government's getting less tax revenue. In. Yeah, just when it needs a few bob. Now, business confidence was flat in April, according to the latest NAB survey, with uneven economic growth and continued weakness in consumer spending and unemployment weighing on sentiment. NAB's latest monthly survey of more than 400 companies found no change in the mood from March at three index points after a jump from zero in February. Business conditions, meanwhile, slipped from six to four points, giving back some of the gains posted between February in March. Consumer confidence rose last week after the Reserve Bank of Australia cut the official cash rate to a new historic low. And confidence jumped 1.7% in the week ending May the 10th after falling 2.8% the previous week, according to ANZ Roy Morgan's Consumer Confidence Barometer. Yeah, well, um, okay. I wonder how long it's going to last, though. The big news for the week, Gary, was the budget. And there's been a huge change in rhetoric because the government has dropped its rules that now that any savings in the budget has to be used directly to reduce the deficit. And now they're saying that extra spending on childcare is going to create jobs and build the economy. That's a faint hope, frankly, I well, think. Well, I think they're going to struggle to get those changes through the Senate with Prime Minister Tony Abbott saying that $3.5 billion expansion of childcare system will require $5 billion in cuts to family welfare, if you can work out the arithmetic of that. And Labor will oppose that and the Greens will oppose it and it won't get up. It won't get up, no. Now, the wash-up from the budget is this, Gary. The funding markets are supported and Australia's net debt is low, so the government has left structural reforms for another day. And what we have with the government is it's desperate to undo the political damage of last year's budget, but which for all its extra spending appears to have done little to assist the overall economy. Now, economic growth is slower than expected last year. Unemployment is higher than expected last year. And at best, you can say this is a budget of very low expectations for the future. But, Gary, it does smack of a government that's targeted spending towards not so much improving growth, but improving its polling. Yeah, it's all about politics and not about about actually rebuilding the economy. Well, you know, I really question the budget. I mean, it forecasts a return to surplus at the end of this decade, but it's not exactly spelling out how it's 
going to be done? Is that going to be done because people are going to go out there and spend? Yeah, I, I doubt it. If they're not going to go out there and spend, and it's also assuming nothing goes wrong with the global economy. Yeah, that and also what are we doing about improving our export and productivity? And indeed, spending has not been curtailed because at 25.9% of GDP, spending in this budget is higher than any of Wayne Swan's budgets, bar one. Okay. <laughs> the uh, the Libs are starting to look like the Labor Party. That's right. Well, to the budget, and the federal government has announced a smaller than expected budget deficit of $35.1 billion. I mean, that's slightly up on the $31.2 billion deficit forecast in the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook, but it's lower than the $40 billion plus that the economists were tipping last week. And the government says that this will reduce to $25.8 billion in 2016, and it remains confident that Australia will be back in surplus in the black in 2019-20. It's forecast net debt to peak at 18% of GDP in 2016-17, but will have fallen to 7.1% by 2025-26. It foreshadows GDP growth of 2.75% in 2015-16, rising to 3.25% in 2016-17, and arm and employment has been forecast to rise from 6.2% to 6.5% this year, before falling to 5.75% in 2018-19. So that's a few years of unemployment we've got. And those are very optimistic forecasts, I would assume, looking at the, certainly only looking at the unemployment figure and what's going to happen in South Australia and uh, Victoria. Well, yeah. Well, anyway, small business scored big wins in the Abbott government's second budget. Small companies with turnovers less than $2 million from the 1st of July will have their tax rate lowers from 30% to 28.5%, and that's worth $3.3 billion over the next four years. And Joe Hockey says small business will be able to claim an immediate tax deduction for each item up to $20,000. It's also giving an annual 5% discount for up to $1,000 a year for unincorporated business, including tradies and sole operators. Okay, the small business needs needs help, there's no doubt of that. Giving 100% tax rebate on a tradie's tools isn't going to get the economy rising which very is quickly. What, which is what big businesses say. Now, the coalition have set their sights on Northern Australia with a new infrastructure facility designed to kickstart a new wave of project building. Up there, the government will establish a concessional loan facility of up to $5 billion in the hopes of increasing private sector investment in re- infrastructure in Northern Australia. And those loan applications will be open from the 1st of July. It's also also set out to repair its relationship with the Australian families in the wake of last year's budget, which was roundly criticised as being unfair. And the centrepiece of this year's budget is $4.4 billion family package designed to help parents juggle the demands of modern life. And the key component of this package is a $3.5 billion investment over five years in childcare assistance, which includes a new streamlined single childcare payment paid directly to childcare centres to reduce parents' upfront costs. And the subsidy comes into effect on July 2017, next year, and will provide assistance to parents who are working, looking for work, training or studying. And, of course, we have to see if it gets through the Senate. And that, again, is a problem. Because it depends on cutting other parts of the family packages. Now, Treasurer Joe Hockey finally has unveiled new measures to crack down on tax avoidance by multinational companies and wants to extend the GST to digital downloads, the so-called Netflix tax. And the first measure, known as the multinational anti-avoidance laws, is going to deal with activities of 30 identified multinational companies and is going to look to start from January the 1st next year. And the multinational tax avoidance law would target companies that divert product profits gained in Australia to overseas tax havens through contrived or artificial tax arrangements. And companies that fail to pay tax on these Australian profits could be forced to pay back double what is owned, plus interest. And the second measure is designed to level the playing field on GST and extends it extends the consumption tax to digital products and delivers an estimated $350 million in additional revenue. And that goes through to the states, Gary. Uh, if they can get it. Well, yes. Uh, well, some of the digital purchase affected by this would include Airbnb, Uber and Netflix and some Google products. 
Yeah, and it's going to be terribly hard to collect, I think. Oh, it's going to be an absolute nightmare, but that's it. And that's it for this week, Gary. Terrific, Leon. That's good. And uh, next week we'll be back and... We have a terrific interview with a guy called Mark Blair from Brightcove. A very interesting company and uh, well worth listening to him. In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.